Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, just a beautiful day outside and, and Lord, for a time to set aside to, to just come in, to worship you, to set aside the cares of the world for just a little while, to focus on what it is you have for us. So uh, we pray again, Father, that you would do that work that you want to accomplish in each heart this morning, that you'd find hearts and lives that are yielded to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if, uh, if you have a Bible or a device, I am never going to get used to saying that. Open your Bible <laughs> or your device to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. We're going to talk about one flesh this morning. Uh, tell you a little story. When I was preparing for this, I was thinking about the world's ideals for marriage. And... <laughs> and Christian ideals for marriage. And it struck me that, that, that the, the world is always trying to look at the externals. And, and I thought, you know, what's, have the happily married, and it's, it's great. You know, I think about our younger married people in the body, our older married people in the body, and I thought, you know, what's the goal? My goal in my marriage is I want at some point to look like that, should the Lord not take me home beforehand. And, and I started thinking, you know, what a beautiful thing that this is a lifelong endeavor as we're looking at marriage this morning. We looked last week, remember we, we started with those two words that every woman loves to hear, wives submit. <laughs> but then we looked at God's design in marriage as we studied wifely submission in the greater context of mutual submission, submitting one to another. We looked at husbandly headship in light of Christ being the head of the church. We looked in the broader context, even broader than that, at all of this being in light of being filled with the Spirit, because you ain't going to be able to pull it off without Him. That's what we're going to talk about more this morning. We looked at the solid relationship between the vertical, our relationship with God, and the horizontal, our relationships with one another, that Paul, as he has talked about in verse 18, he talks about being filled with the Spirit. Remember, we looked at those four participles. They're all important in this. Speaking, singing, thinking, and submitting. Now, we talked about submitting last week. We, uh, and I'm just going to break it down. I'm going to go through verses 21 through 24 again, but just, and we're not going to teach through it again, but so that we can understand the linkage between the vertical, our relationship with God, and the horizontal, our relationships with one another, specifically in this case, in marriage. He says in verse 21, submitting to one another, horizontal, in the fear of God, vertical. Wives, we looked at the word submit is not there. It's implied. It's in, the, it's in verse 20, but it's not in verse 21. Wives to your husbands, to your own husbands, horizontal, as to the Lord, vertical. For the husband is the head of the wife, horizontal, as also Christ is head of the church, he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, vertical, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, horizontal. Do you see how that breaks down? Again, understand the linkage that Christian, and we're talking, again, I got to stress, this is Christian marriage. This isn't a guy that moved in with his girlfriend. This isn't people that are out there in the world that are just trying to figure it out. What we're talking about, because in the world, it's like boy meets girl, they fall in love, they decide to get married, right? 
That's not how it's ordered in the kingdom. This is God joining two people together. When you understand that that's the real context and content of marriage is God is putting people together, that he is joining people together as one flesh. That's the original design. We'll look at it all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. It's still God's design today that it's different. It's elevated far above anything that the world can put forth. So we looked at how God places certain responsibilities on the man, on the husband, last week. And how it is that as a a Christian wife submits to her husband's headship, that she honors God. She's honoring the same God that put those responsibilities on her husband. Therefore, she honors God. It's not about the man. It's about the Lord. It's about the vertical relationship being worked out in the horizontal. It has nothing to do with power. Uh, again, we looked at that. It, it, it's, it's, this is not some power trip that a guy power trips his wife all the time. It, it has nothing to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with that. He's going to control her every move. It has everything to do with value. Because Jesus Christ was the first one in human history that elevated women to equal status and value as men. He is the great liberator. Uh, so this week we're going to look at it. Now, guys, it's your turn. <laughs> so we're going to look at the husbands this week. And we're going to look at just what those responsibilities are as God lays out through this inspired passage here in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, this passage on marriage, is the most exhaustive, the most concentrated passage on marriage in all of God's word. And we do well to pay attention to it, whether we've been married for 50 years or three weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> that wasn't for you guys. It wasn't for Heidi and Ethan. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Give you a hard time. At any rate, so we're going to look at the first four words in our text this morning. We're going to start off there. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I have loosely restated that as happy wife, happy life. You guys know that. So he says, though, I'm going to read through all the way through the rest of the chapter. Husbands, love your wives just as. So when he says just as here, he's, he's, going, to, he's going to link. This is the linkage here. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a mouthful. But I remember now, last week we looked at the four different contexts. We looked at the the cultural, the, the historic context, the cultural context, the textual context, and the contextual context. We're not going to go that much in depth because I've already laid the groundwork. If you weren't here last week, it's online on Facebook and YouTube and all that other jazz, uh, podcast, 
you can access it through our website. But I do want to come back and revisit the Roman culture and Jewish culture as we look at this passage, because we want to understand what people were dealing with back then. So at the time of Paul, the apostle, when he wrote this, in the empire, family life was in ruins. It was a mess. The philosopher Seneca, and he was Nero's right-hand guy, governed for Nero for the first five years or so, and then Nero got in there and screwed everything up. But uh, Seneca said, he wrote that, a wom- that women were married to be divorced, and they were divorced to be married. Roman women dated their years not by age, but by the names of their husbands. In ancient literature, the biblical scholar Jerome declared it to be true that in Rome, there was a woman who was married to her 23rd husband, and she herself was his 21st wife. He had two on her. (laughs) Uh, Emperor Augustus recorded, he demanded that the husband of a woman named Lady Livia, that he should divorce his wife, even as she was pregnant, so that he might marry her himself. Now, that's not to say that, that there was no such thing as faithfulness in the empire. Uh, again, looking back into Roman history, it tells of a woman named Melonia who committed suicide rather than submit to the sexual exploits of Emperor Tiberius. We talked about him briefly last week. And um, yeah, not a good guy. So all of that is to say it's, it's not an exaggeration that with little exception, the whole of society in the first century in Roman Empire was adulterous, unbridled lust was the rule of the day. It wasn't the exception, it was the rule. So throughout the empire, the marriage bond was on its way to completely breaking down. Sound familiar? Look around. Jewish culture. The law of divorce had been summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is interesting. Deuteronomy 24.1 tells us when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, he could write her a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Obviously, everything rested on the interpretation of some uncleanness in her. Uh, the stricter rabbis would interpret that as meaning adultery and adultery alone, that that was cause for him to divorce her. That's also supported by the text. I I did a little studying on that as I was preparing here, and that's exactly what was being talked about. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But they looked at it as a very narrow scope through which divorce could take place. The more liberal rabbis, on the other hand, the guys that were making lists, uh, they interpreted it a different way. And it was a very broad interpretation. They could, a man could divorce his wife, and this is in the first century in Jewish culture, if she walked in public with her head uncovered. If she talked with men in the streets. If she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's parents and her husband's hearing. If she was an argumentative woman. If she was troublesome or quarrelsome, and get this, if she spoiled his dinner by putting too much salt on his food, that was actually listed. What are you guys looking at each other for? (laughs) Suffice it to say, the culture that Paul was addressing was one in which 
men, they just ran the show. they had almost total authority over women and children and slaves. Remember, we looked at Roman government broke down order, law and order being maintained through the simplest, through the, the most basic denominator, and that was the household, that was the home. And, and that's why they gave men such broad authority, because they were to maintain order in their homes. Now, into this comes the gospel. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, but women and children and slaves, they didn't have any choice. They had to live submissively to the men that were over them. So whether Roman or Jewish, theirs was both a patriarchal and a hierarchical society comprised primarily of men serving their own depravity, unchecked. So when the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote this beautiful passage, He wasn't stating a popular view. Christian marriage, then, as it is today, is not looked on as the mainline deal. I read an article just yesterday about uh, a huge percentage of evangelical Christians think it's okay to be sexually active outside of marriage. Uh, I, I don't understand that. The only way that I look at that is that biblical illiteracy is at an all time high in the church. People are not understanding what God's word has to say. They're not being taught. They're not spending time themselves being invested in understanding God's will for their lives. So rather than people embracing what Paul had to say, they they looked at his statements about marriage as ridiculous and narrow and limiting and radical. Uh, That's how the unredeemed populace looked at these statements on marriage. And they were partly right. Christian marriage is, by definition, is narrow. People have called me narrow-minded before, and I usually say, amen. Yeah, I I understand what God's word has to say, and I'm not going to wander outside of that. Uh, It's narrow in its definition. It's radical in its application. Understand, these people had not been aware of these things until now. So rather than being ridiculous, it's a brilliant reflection of God's relationship to man and vice versa. We'll see that works both ways. That's part of how Paul lays this out. Rather than limiting, it was and is the most freeing of all human relationships. It's a beautiful thing. So the point is it's within this dark mid-first century backdrop that it's impossible to exaggerate the cleansing effect that Christianity had on home life in the ancient world, also the benefits that it brought to women. God was calling men and women to a new purity and new fellowship in married life. Didn't exist before that. Remember, Looking at this, I want you to put yourself in the place of some, a first century Christian in Ephesus or any town in the Roman Empire, but specifically in, in Ephesus, that, that you have no prior knowledge of these things, that you are going along according to the dictates of the culture within which you grew up. And, and, and eight years before Paul wrote this letter, he actually founded the church at Ephesus. Uh, when he first came to Ephesus, we read in Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 1 and 2, 
It says in the, that he found some disciples. Some people had gone through and had evangelized their way through the territory prior to him. But he found some disciples and he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They knew nothing of the kingdom of God. That's why Paul set up the school of Tyrannus. First, he was in the synagogue, but then ultimately he ended up setting up a school there and was spent three years at Ephesus training people up, teaching them things of the kingdom, giving them understanding of these things that were radical. Again, they were radical. They were new. They were things, they were a complete departure from the way that things had been done and the way that they understood things from their culture. So let's break this down in the text. Uh, Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, if you've been hanging around the body of Christ for very long, you probably know that there's more than one Greek word for the word love. There are four, actually, that are used in the Bible. The first is eros. Now, eros is a physical love, a sexual love. It's the kind of love that a husband has for his wife. Remember, though, we looked in verse 3 where he talks about porneia. That's when eros is perverted. It was being perverted throughout their culture. It wasn't eros, it was porneia. But God's intention for marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled, we're told in the book of Hebrews, is eros. That's the physical union of a husband and a wife. And only a husband and a wife. The next word for love we see in the Bible is the word storge. Storge is a family love. That's I look at Julia and Eli, mom and, and son, brand new baby, and I think about just that, the parental love that's going on, just the bond that I see. I love seeing their, their pictures on Facebook. They're just beautiful. At any rate, now I'm putting you guys on the spot. But the point is, is that this is the kind of love that you have for your kids and that your kids have for you. This is the kind of love that you have for your siblings, regardless of what they do, because sometimes you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're doing that. It's still, you love them. That's storge. That's a, it's a strong, it's a, it's a sturdy love that, that weathers all kinds of things because it's family. So that's what storge is. The next is philia or phileo, depending on the usage of, of the word. We get the, the, the word Philadelphia from this love. It, it, it's the city of brotherly love, and that's what it is. It's, it's a fondness or an affection when we're friends with each other. We express philia or phileo to one another. That's the kind of love that uh, is expressed, and it's a reciprocal love. The fourth is agapeo, or agape love. That's the word that Paul uses here. Husbands, agape your wives. This is a completely distinct form of love. This is love from the will. This love is rooted in the will. It's not rooted in the emotions. We may feel emotionally about someone, but this kind of love is a product of a choice. This is a love that is, again, it's rooted in my will. It's something I choose to do. I choose to love. This is a love that doesn't have conditions attached to it. If you, then I. It's not about that. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with me. This is, by the way, the way that God loves us. Because if it was you, then I, none of us would measure up, would we? This is a sacrificial love. This is a love that, in its nature and its application, 
sacrifices, puts your good ahead of my own. That's what he means when he says, husbands, love your wife. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, as Christ loved the church. This statement takes the understanding of marital love out of the cultural context. It takes it out of, it's not about culture. It's not about warm fuzzies. It's not about what's going on in the culture. This is a different and a distinct kind of love, and it's sacrificial. We're going to look at these things as we go through, as Paul now breaks down what this love, how this love shows up in people's lives, specifically in marital love. The first thing we see is it must be a sacrificial love. You might be thinking, how idealistic. Our response to that is exactly. He must love her as Christ loved the church, gave himself for the church. It's never a selfish love. Christ loved the church, not for what the church might do for him, but for the things that he might do for her. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. What did he do for her? He went low. We've talked about that, but we've got to get into it again. He went low. He put himself below her to elevate her. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, we read, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that's what we're talking about, let each esteem others better than himself. Apply this to marriage as we go through this. That each of you look not only on his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So that's the principle. It's seen in the horizontal relationships. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he gives the example, which is rooted in the vertical. Verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you. Apply this to your life, is what he's saying which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, there's that concept of going low, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You gotta understand this is, this is an impossible order to carry out on your own. Remember, the greater context here, it's, it's, yes, husbands, love your wives, but the greater context is being filled with the Spirit. The context that's greater than that is in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, imitate God as beloved children. These are the ways that that shows up. This is the way that being filled with the, the Spirit shows up. This is the way that imitating God shows up. So you've got to remember, keep the entire context. This entire chapter has to flow together. Otherwise, you pick things out of it, and it's like, well, that's a great concept, Pastor John, but I have no idea how to carry that off in my life. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. Whatever. The point is, this is written for husbands and wives in the greater context of being in subjection to one another. Christ is in complete subjection to the Father when he accomplished the work that he did. And now when he says, I want you to love your wives in that manner, I want you to understand 
that that's only going to be done through your being obedient and walking in the power of my Holy Spirit as a vessel that's now been cleansed and that can walk obediently with me. And submitting to one another because we regard the other as more important than ourselves. That's the sacrificial part. Idealistically, it must be on the basis of sacrificial love. Here's a question, and it's a rhetorical one, doesn't really require an answer. How does this stack up against the world's ideal for marriage? It doesn't. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The second thing we look at here is this kind of love must be a purifying love. When he talks about uh, being washed in the water by the word, that's the word rhema as opposed to logos. Logos means translating the written word, rhema, the spoken word. So in context here, in past tense, Christ has sanctified and cleansed his church as each of us has made a personal confession of faith. If you've never done that, we'll give you an opportunity to do that towards the end of the service. However, again, this is towards his people. In the present tense, what he's talking about here in context is that Christ is sanctifying and cleansing his church by his spirit and through his word. I want you to understand, though, catch the imagery here, guys, that he may present her to himself. This is, this is him elevating the church. This is him adoring his church, pouring out his immeasurable love upon his bride. And he's saying, husbands, love your wife like that. Don't just get bogged down in the doctrine of this, guys. He's talking about cherishing, adoring, elevating wives. How did Jesus do it? He did it without spot or wrinkle. He presents his church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. How idealistic. Exactly. None of us will attain that state until we're there, until we're in his presence. However, Paul's point stands here. Husbands, are you loving and leading your wife in such a way as you're committed to the ongoing process of both your and her sanctification? The point here is, are you actively the spiritual leader in your home. We'll get to that towards the end of the message. There's some things that he brings out here that are just marvelous to look at. But real love, real love, genuine love, Christian love, godly love is the great purifier of life. I want to make a point here too, just as as a, a note. If your understanding of marriage is that it's there, it's in place to make you happy, you're wrong. You've got some chuckles I can hear. It's not primarily to make one happy. It's to make one holy. I, I, I 
walked into, uh, I went downstairs from, I have a study at home in the second story, and I was preparing for this, and I walked up to Stacy at one point, and I said, honey, I discovered something. She said, what's that? I said, you put two sinful people together, and you're going to get friction. And she just looked at me like, are you just now figuring that out? <laughs> but, but it's true. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we came to Christ, we didn't just shed this lower nature. Yeah, it's a lower nature, and it needs to be in subjection to the Spirit. That's his point here. But we express that, and there is no greater proving ground for your faith than your marriage, if indeed you're married, and if you're not, then, you know, spend some time in the mirror. But the point is, I, <laughs> yes, but the point is, marriage will make you holy. It will purify you. Because you're faced with choices all the time. Do I get my way or do I get hers or his? All the time. It will make you, it will, it will purify you. And it, it needs to be this purifying love that's our goal, not just something that we recognize. Question, again. How does this fit with the world's ideal for marriage? Well, boy meets girl. They decide to get married. No, it's God joining two people together to become one flesh. When you understand it in the context in which God originally intended, it sure makes a whole lot more sense. Verse 28, he says, So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church third thing we want to look at here is this must be a caring love. Now, I've heard a lot of stuff over the years. I just need her to learn how to love myself so I can love my wife. I get a little tangled up with that mindset. In Matthew chapter 22, the creepy religious guys, that's what I call the religious leaders, Jesus's day, they were trying to trip Jesus up. So he's there, and one of the creepy religious guys says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I want you to notice something here. He doesn't say on these three commandments. Love God, love others, love yourself. No, he says love God, love others. Because generally, guys, ladies, we have very little problem loving ourselves. As a matter of fact, self-love in this context can really get in the way at times. And we're not in a habit of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Think about it. I don't know about you, but I cut myself more slack than just about anybody else in my life. You want to talk about grace? John gets grace. We're self-centered. If I stink, I get a shower. If I'm hungry, I get some food. I take care of me. So do you. I'm not saying anybody stinks. Don't get me wrong. 
the point is we make sure that our own needs are met. And what he's saying here is Christian or marital love sees one's spouse as not distinct from, but as part of oneself. He's warming up here. He's getting to the part about two becoming one. A man sees his wife as beyond equal to, in God's economy, as beyond equal to, of greater value than himself and his caring for her. This must be a caring love. Just as the Lord cares for his bride, the church. How idealistic. Exactly. Verse 30. For we're members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. Now, he's been using this analogy of Christ and the church and, and marriage and all of that. First, the relationship between Jesus and the church has spoken to us about the husband-wife relationship. We've been looking at that. Now, he turns the analogy inside out, and the marriage relationship speaks to us about the relationship between Jesus and his people. I think that's awesome, the way that he, he kind of sets it on the other end there and turns it around. Verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For what reason? Well, guys, you don't have any trouble taking care of yourself. Now start treating your wife that way and make sure that she is elevated above you. So the fourth thing we see here, though, he says, for this reason, he'll leave his father and his mother, join to his, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. What this needs to be is an unbreakable love. If the word divorce is part of your conversation and you profess the name of Christ, even in your thought life, stop it. I know that there are times where marriages fall apart. My heart goes out. I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on that. But what I am saying is that this is not part of the conversation according to God's word. This is an unbreakable love in God's design. For the sake of this love, a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. They become one flesh in God's eyes. He would no more think of separating from her than tear his own body apart. That's the word picture that's being put forth here. He quotes Genesis 2 as God ordained marriage before the fall. Now, this is before Adam and Eve fell, when God ordained marriage. He had just finished creating Eve. And in Genesis 2.23, Adam said, (laughs) whenever I read this, I think, I don't think Adam said this in a monotone. I think he was excited. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. And I mean, he's excited. He has now a counterpart. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined or cleave, that's how it's rendered in some translations, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word there is kind of like something getting welded to something else. We're talking about something that's joined. So what does this mean? That's the question. What is this leave and cleave? What is, what is that? What's indicated in that? And I think part of the answer is found in, in the original Greek word. The, the word is katalepo. And what it means is literally to cause a particular relationship to cease. Now, In Ephesians chapter 5 here, in in what Paul is stating, it's important to avoid the expression that suggests a relationship being abandoned or deserted. This is a relationship changing. 
It's a limitation on a particular relationship, which is spoken of here. So when he talks about leave and cleave, biblically defined roles and responsibilities are what he's talking about. A man needs a wife, not a mother. Understand this. When, guys, when you grew up, and, and, and different family dynamics and all that, I mean, understand that. When, 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 when you grew up, you were under the tutelage, under, you were in submission to, directed by, primarily, and it might have been your dad, but generally, it's your mother. You understand, I understand being a son. I understand being subject to mom. <laughs> she had that look, man, till the day she died. It's like, okay. But, you know, I understand that. I get what it is to be a son. My wife doesn't need a son. She needs a husband. And if I maintain the role I had growing up, and I don't leave my father and my mother and cleave to my wife, I can come into that marriage acting like a son and she will never respect me. She doesn't want a son. She wants a husband. Conversely, a woman needs a husband, not a son. A man needs a wife, not a mother. See, because... I can come into that marriage, and women, ladies, let's face it, you are hardwired. Very, I mean, there are times where, like in Southeast Asia, Stacey and I were kind of blown away. We saw mothers that didn't have that maternal instinct. There were like ones that would sell their kid for a television. It was like, it was just bizarre. But there's a hardwired instinct thing that's there with a woman that she's wired to be a mom. Come into a marriage... A husband doesn't need a mom. He needs a wife. And so if she comes in and she tries to project being a mom onto him, he will never respect her. Because a man needs a wife, not a mother. Just as a woman needs a husband, not a son. Respect. Mutual respect. Mutual submission is the key. So for men, if you're thinking, I've been acting more like a son than a husband, step up. Lead your family in the kind of love that he's talking about here. Women, if you've been running the show and you're used to it, because guys, you know, if you don't, she will. But if you've been running the show, and your husband is convicted about this and he needs he sees the need to be able to express himself as God designed in marriage step in but don't step over him allow him to lead understanding you know what he's going to lead and he's going to screw it up i know that from very close firsthand experience over and over again But when I met my wife, I said, you know, honey, there are two things that I'm looking for in a Christian woman. The first is I want a woman that loves Jesus more than she loves me. And that's a hard deal. I would not settle for someone that didn't. The second is I want a woman who understands headship and she understands 
and she wants her husband to lead. I did not want to meet a woman that would, uh, coming in the door, we would be set up for conflict. Ladies, step in. Don't step over. Men, step up. These are good things. These are healthy things to adopt in our marriages, in our families. doesn't matter if you've been married 50 years or three weeks. Not looking. Verse 32. He says, this is a great or profound mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, remember we looked earlier in the book of Ephesians. He talks about a mystery as not being something that's not knowable, but that was not known until then. He's saying, he's using the same term here. He's saying, look, this linkage between a man leaving his father, his mother, a man serving his wife, a man loving his wife in this way is like Christ's relationship with his church, with his bride. It was not known until now, but now that it is known, I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss the linkage between the vertical and the horizontal. Because Genesis 2.24 finds its ultimate realization in the profound truth that Christ, of Christ coming to win his bride, the church, by giving himself for her at the cross. Verse 33. Nevertheless, he says, let each of one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All that we've been looking at this morning is to the husband, except for these last few words in this chapter. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wife in these ways, sacrificially, in a cleansing love, in a sturdy love, in a love that's unbreakable. How idealistic. Exactly. Here's the point. It's not a bad thing to live by a set of ideals. The word ideal has two definitions in the dictionary. I looked this up and I was kind of surprised and going, wow, that really fits. I'm going to use that. (laughs) The first definition is existing only in the imagination. Desirable or perfect, but not likely to become a reality. Very often when people come into marriage with false expectations or worldly expectations. This is the kind of ideal that they come into it with. And when marriage fails, their idealistic idea of what it ought to be, they bail. The second definition is to satisfy one's conception of what is perfect. We're looking at that, the perfect union, Christ and his bride. What is most suitable? The second definition here belongs to you and I as men and women of God, empowered by the fullness of his spirit in our marriages, we reach for these ideals. Have any of us arrived at them? Absolutely not. But why do we need ideals? We need them because we'll ignore ideals. If we ignore them, we'll settle for that which is unacceptable and we'll call that real. We'll call that the norm. It's not God's will for us. If you don't have ideals, there's no possibility of growth. There's no possibility of maturity. If there's no possibility of maturity, there's no possibility of development. You will stay stuck in mediocrity and you'll excuse it away as that's just the way things are. That's just how my marriage is. That is not God's will for our lives. 
Are these things idealistic? Absolutely. Are they ones to hold on to? Absolutely. Far and above the ideals for marriage that are rooted in the world. Something to remember about these things is he who aims at nothing will hit it. True. So you might be thinking, especially if you're watching online or somebody here, I I don't understand. I've never known Christian marriage because I'm not a Christian. We're going to come to the Lord's table this morning and uh, we're going to receive communion together. But if that's a piece of business that you need to take care of, you need to do that first. You've got to understand that the Jesus that we're talking about, the Jesus that's ordained this beautiful marriage that we're looking at, that's a reflection of our relationship with him, has to be that. It has to be a relationship thing that is rooted in my relationship with him, expressed in my relationship with my wife, in my relationship with my husband. If you don't know the Lord this morning, I want to invite you to do just that. Very simple transaction, profound transaction. But I want to ask you to pray a prayer, something like, God, I've been away from you. I've I've lived in rebellion towards you all my life. I, I don't have answers. I don't understand the stresses in my life. I don't know where to turn. I'm not happy. I, I need, I know, I recognize I need someone greater than myself to figure these things out, to walk through these things. Not only will he fill you with his Holy Spirit and give you the ability to live this life well, and it's the ability to live life above your circumstances, You get eternity as part of the package. You get to go to heaven. You get to spend life in his presence forever. Pray that prayer. Turn from the old life. But he says, repent and believe. Repent means to turn. It means to change your mind. I've had it. I'm sick of the old life. I don't want it anymore. And I want to embrace Jesus. I want to let the weight of my life down on him. He says in Matthew 11, when you're weary and you're heavily laden, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. Pray that prayer. Ask Jesus to take control of your life. He'll do it.